1: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Today is a special episode because we now kick off our Viking mini-series. This month, every Tuesday, I will be taking a deep dive into the Viking Age, looking at how it all started how it all ended, and the stories we tell about those people from the north in between. But to start it all off, in this episode, I'm going to be answering all of your burning questions on everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings. To do that, I've enlisted the help of two people who are absolutely key to making this whole podcast happen, namely my producers, Elena and Rob, and they've been collating your questions on Instagram, Twitter, and through the Medieval Mondays newsletter, There's a huge interest in the Vikings out there, so I'm really excited to be able to hear from all you brilliant listeners, because obviously without you, this podcast wouldn't really happen. So thank you to everyone who's gotten involved with this, and a very warm welcome to Elena and Rob.
0: Thanks, Katz.
2: Yay! I'm so happy to be making a debut of the podcast. (laughs) It's brilliant. Normally we just have meetings and emails, but actually having you in the studio is fantastic. Really? I should just hand this over to you two now, shouldn't I? Because you're going to be the ones asking me questions this time around.
0: Well, I think there's nothing more appropriate for the Vikings than burning questions. (laughs) But I have a burning question for you to start with. And that is, when I was growing up, there was a TV children's cartoon series, which I watched avidly, called Noggin' the Nog. And uh, that was my very first experience of knowing about the Vikings, although they were very cute. But was it Nog in the Nog that got you into the Vikings?
2: So it wasn't actually, mainly because... I grew up in Norway. We didn't have knocking the knock on Um. Tully, I'm afraid. So we didn't have much Tully at all, I have to say. Sounds a bit backwards, (laughs) doesn't it? But what it really was, actually, was something similar. So I read a fiction novel about the Viking Age, about these Viking children who were actually taken as slaves from Ireland and taken to Norway when I was about nine. I then went to the Viking Ship Museum in Oslo and saw these incredible Viking ships. And that just completely did it for me because the stories were amazing, but actually it was real. So that's sort of where it started. Went on to study archaeology, was lucky enough to go on to do a master's and a PhD, studying the Viking age, realising that actually there was so much we really didn't know, still don't know about the Vikings, and that we had some really exciting new methods, scientific methods, to answer those questions. So yeah, it kind of all took off from there, really. So this is incredibly exciting. I'm really excited
3: that we're able to get the listeners involved with this. And so I think let's take it back to basics for the first few questions. So who were the Vikings and when did they exist?
2: So the people we call the Vikings are people from Scandinavia, the people who went out from Scandinavia at raiding and trading, starting at the end of the 8th century and going on until the late 11th century. And We call them Vikings, even though they didn't really call themselves that. So I'm going to go a little bit deeper into that in the next episode, actually. But for now, let's use the shorthand Vikings, Scandinavians, going out, some staying home between the 8th and the 11th centuries. And so one of the stereotypes that I think of when I think about the Vikings is that they were a particularly violent group of people. Is there any truth to that? That's a question that comes up quite a lot because that is the image that the Vikings have of these very, very sort of violent people. And there's definitely a lot of truth to that. We can't go the other way and say, well, actually, no, they were really just cuddly and sweet. A lot of Vikings certainly weren't violent. There were lots of farmers. There were lots of traders. There were lots of people who were absolutely not involved in raiding at all. But also, the people we know who went out from Scandinavia to places like Britain and raided were absolutely violent. And we do hear about this in the written records. So we also have to remember that a lot of that comes from the people who were being targeted. So they obviously have every reason to emphasise that strength and violence of the Vikings. But interestingly, if you try and actually look for evidence for it from other sources. So, for example, you could look at skeletons, so human remains, and see... Have these people got more injuries? If they're really violent, then you should also find lots of bodies with lots of violent injuries from swords and axes and things. And if you look at Scandinavia in that time period, there actually isn't that much evidence of violence. And comparing the bones from the Viking Age to those before and after, it seems like there's almost more violence in the medieval period, so sort of later after the Viking Age. We don't know if that's just at home, if it's different away But we do also know that early medieval Europe was a very violent place. So I think they probably gave as good as they got, (laughs) to put it that way. Certainly we have mass graves of people we now think are Scandinavian raiders in Oxford and in Weymouth. One of them contains more than 50 men who have all been decapitated by their enemies. So presumably by people living in England at the time. So although, yes, violence was a big part of Viking society... I'm not sure that a sort of completely violent society is what we're looking at. So we do need to sort of consider it a bit more widely than that.
0: We've been talking a lot about the Vikings being this very sort of macho culture. In fact, when I think about the Vikings, I just think about hairy men in helmets raiding. But uh, we've had a couple of questions on Instagram from Vicky and Steve. And it's the same question, actually. What did female Vikings do? And or as Steve says, (laughs) Vi-queens?
2: So, again, this is something that is is a really interesting question that I've been researching, actually, for the last 10 years. We used to think that all the women in the Viking Age stayed at home, tended to the farm. Their menfolk went away. They went out raiding and trading and doing all these things and coming back. So women were at home tending to the farm. To a degree, that was probably quite correct. We know that a lot of women did stay home. But also, we now know that an awful lot of the women from Scandinavia were part of the movement outwards. One of the reasons why we can now tell is that we can use modern, more forensic methods. So we can look at things like isotope analysis, which is a way of looking at skeletons, looking at teeth and tooth enamel to find out where somebody grew up. And by doing that, we can trace migration around the world. So looking at skeletons from the Viking Age, we see that actually an awful lot of women are also moving out of Scandinavia And others are coming back in, interestingly, as well. So women are not just staying put at home. And as to the question of whether they're fighting, that's become a really popular question at the moment. Again, that's something we used to think that absolutely not. There is one very famous grave in Birka in Sweden, a grave BJ581, also known as the Birka Warrior Woman. And this caused a sort of huge worldwide sensation a few years ago when ancient DNA analysis showed that This skeleton, somebody who was buried in a very rich grave full of weapons, pretty much every type of weapon you could imagine, was always thought to be a man, but DNA showed that this body was genetically female. So what was thought to be one of the most powerful warriors in the Viking Age turned out to be presumably a woman. So that sort of changed that question completely, and we have other records of this as well, so of women fighting abroad being found on battlefields, for example. But I think this was quite rare. I think it was possible, as a woman, you could take up weapons. You almost certainly had to know how to defend yourself, either back home or, if you're one of those women travelling out, you had to know how to defend yourself. So I think it was a possibility. I don't think we have what some modern drama shows like to have these huge big armies, Lagertha and her crew, for example, in Vikings. I don't think it was anywhere near that common, but it was definitely possible. But we also know that some women took part in things like trading. So there's a lot of burials of women with trading weights, especially into Eastern Europe and places like Russia. So I think we have to move away from that very sort of simple women at home, which interestingly was created in kind of Victorian times when that was when the view of women in current society was that they were quite passive staying at home. And now I think we have quite varied roles. We have some female rulers as well, so we have some very powerful, presumably white queens, as Steve suggested. I love that.
0: Can we pick up on the question of DNA, which you just mentioned? We've had a number of questions through the Medieval Mondays newsletter concerning the genetic legacy of the Vikings in Britain and Ireland. If one was to have a DNA test, would we find bits of Viking in our blood still?
2: So this is a question I get asked quite a lot, actually, because these modern DNA tests are really popular. And some of them actually advertise that you could look for Viking ancestry. You can find out how many percent Viking you are is not quite that simple. First of all, there's no Viking DNA. This Viking, as I'll get into in a later episode, is just a term that we've given people from Scandinavia. And there's also problems with how that sort of ancestry is passed on. Because actually, if you trace your history back, you've got hundreds of thousands, millions of ancestors, you know, it multiplies every generation. But there's not really been that many people in the world. So if you go back a 1000 years, There are actually fewer people alive a thousand years ago than you have ancestors, which is a really difficult thing to get your head around. But what that means is that these sort of ancestries cross over. And actually, it also means that if you go back to about a thousand years ago, everyone who lived a thousand years ago and had offspring, had children and passed on their DNA is essentially the ancestor of everyone living today, which is a really weird concept that I still don't quite get. But what that means is that if you've grown up in Northwestern Europe, if you've got ancestry in Northwestern Europe, you probably have some ancestors who are what we would call Scandinavians. So that's a really sort of random way of answering the question. We also need to think about the fact that if you take a DNA test and your genes are then compared to where people are living today, So they'll be comparing your DNA to people living in England, living in Scandinavia. So it doesn't necessarily tell you about where people lived in, say, 850 AD, but where people are living today. So that's why it's not quite so simple, unfortunately, and people get a little bit disappointed. But we do know that a lot of people moved out of Scandinavia, a lot of people didn't just raid in places like Britain and Ireland, but in fact, they did settle. We haven't quite figured out just how many yet. We're still arguing amongst ourselves as academics how many people actually settled somewhere like England. We think probably quite large numbers. But some of the DNA studies are suggesting that the actual genetic legacy is quite small, as little as maybe 6%, I think one study suggested. But again, I think that's partially because of the way that methods work. There's also an issue with the similarities between Scandinavians from the Viking Age and the people who migrated to England in the centuries before that, the people we tend to call the Anglo-Saxons. So
3: this was going to be my next question. So this is from Sam, Peter, Lucy, and Ahija, all from the Medieval Monday newsletter. And they're keen to understand the difference between Vikings and Anglo-Saxons and whether they have a common ancestor, because I think sometimes Vikings and Anglo-Saxons can be confused or maybe used interchangeably. So what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, so this is such a good question. And again, it's one that doesn't unfortunately have a very simple answer, but that's what makes it so interesting, I think. So the people we tend to refer to as the Anglo-Saxons, and I know that term itself is a little bit controversial, but what we mean by that is the people who seem to migrate into England in the post-Roman period. So they come from northwestern Europe as well. So really what's southern Denmark, northern Germany, across the coast to sort of Netherlands. These are people who are named as Angles, Saxons, and also Jutes. Well, the Jutes tend to get forgotten about in, in all of this. And they seem to come across to England, where they settle possibly invade we don't really know there are stories there are historical narratives dating back to that period so Bede for example writes that these people and invade Britain and they sort of push away the native Britons and they settle instead we have some archaeological evidence we've got evidence that things like pottery decoration artifacts match in parts of England and these parts of Denmark and Germany so there's clearly things happening there But what's difficult when you then get into the genetics of it is that these come from very similar places. So some of them are southern Denmark, Vikings come from Denmark too, and it's very close in time. These migrations, these earlier migrations, happen all the way up to the Viking Age, really. So there's not really a genetic difference, and we can't tell them apart. And that's where the problem comes in. So when you have these studies, these huge big genetic studies all over England or over Britain... Trying to tease apart people who migrated before the Viking Age and during is almost impossible. But having said that, there's also some other places. So some of the Norwegian DNA, for example, is quite different. Scandinavia is quite big. There's not sort of one big lump of genetic ancestry that's all the same. There's a lot of variety there. So there are some patterns and we can see more people from Norway, for example, going across to the northwest things like that. So there are patterns there, but it is tricky and it's very tricky to tell them apart or to work out when the migration's happened.
0: How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar?
2: And it's very interesting to think about why it's Caesar in particular, when there have been many political assassinations in the past millennia, why Caesar's has been the one that is brought up again and again.
0: Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? In the Jurassic you see dinosaurs get bigger, and you see meat-eating dinosaurs grow into things like the size of buses. And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships?
2: She is always derided as this sort of terrible adulteress, but at least as old as Homer, at least the 8th century BCE, is a counter-tradition in which Helen doesn't go to Troy. She's never Helen of Troy, she's Helen of Egypt.
0: Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to the Ancients wherever you get your
1: podcasts. And more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
0: So we had this question about were all. Viking scandinavians or alternatively were all scandinavians automatically vikings Haley has also written through the medieval monday newsletter she says if vikings traveled and traded so widely would they have come across people of color and would this have led to vikings of different races if so where did they come from what roles might they have played how were they treated or were all vikings actually blonde and white
2: What characterises the Viking Age is really this movement out. It's the fact that they are going out of Scandinavia. They're going so far. They reach all the way to North America. They go down to the Mediterranean and into Eastern Europe. So in all those travels, of course, they do come across an awful lot of people. We know that for a fact. So we do know that there are raids recorded in Morocco, for example. So they will be certainly meeting North Africans there. We also know that there's a huge movement to the East. Part of the, the stuff that I've been looking at and researching in my work is the contact with Eastern Europe, especially going all the way down to Constantinople or Istanbul, as we know it, but also across to Baghdad. So we know that those people who went East along the rivers of Eastern Europe had a lot of contact with eastern parts of the world. So they would have come across a lot of Arabs. We know there's records and accounts of Arabic travellers who interact with these eastern Vikings. We also hear about them travelling all the way to Baghdad themselves. So in places like Constantinople and Baghdad, they're going to come across an awful lot of different people. Whether many of those came back to places like Scandinavia, we actually don't really know. Although we do see evidence of contact with Islam, certainly, there's a lot of huge numbers, like we're talking hundreds of thousands of Islamic coins coming into Scandinavia. Now, that's actually because of the silver more than anything else, but they have contact with that. We also actually have some people buried, especially in Birka in Sweden, which seem to be a sort of cultural melting pot. You have people buried with all sorts of grave goods, including Arabic items. There's a woman with a ring that's got an Arabic inscription on it. Whether these are actual people from the Islamic world who've come up and migrated, we don't really know. There are some possibilities of that They don't seem, though, to have made much of an impact genetically. There was a a recent big ancient DNA study and largely in Scandinavia, so sort of coming back home, the types of DNA and genetics there were more commonly what you would expect in Scandinavia. But there was also some southern European DNA, so certainly some people were coming back in. But you then also have some interaction with various native populations, both in Scandinavia itself. You've got the Sami people who are sort of semi-nomadic people. And then if you go across to the North Atlantic and somewhere like Greenland, you do have an indigenous population there too that they definitely interacted with. Nobody's found any genetic interaction between them, but we know from things like the sagas, for example, they actually have a name for the Inuit people called Skrālingir. It's not always a peaceful relationship, but we also see now from archaeology that they were clearly trading, so they were interacting. We have people interacting really a lot, and there's no evidence to suggest that they were particularly negative to people of other cultures or races or skin colour or anything like that, which I think is quite interesting. doesn't really ever come across in the sagas or anything and I think actually part of the key to the Vikings' success was the fact that they were really adaptable, they could go all these places they could interact with all these people so clearly there's nothing in their society or religion that's really saying don't talk to people with dark skin or anything like that They're so there's no sort of sign of anything like that, which I think is quite interesting and I think just the final question was on whether they were all blonde and white Well, we have actually seen now from that ancient DNA study that I just mentioned, which looked at things like skin and hair colour, they definitely weren't all blonde. So we do have a lot of brown hair. As to skin colour, I think they are largely light skin, which is to be expected really, but definitely not all blonde. So I'm going to segue
3: from Haley's really highbrow question into one from some of the boys in the History Hit office, Jake McGorry and Luke Holmes. So they ask, was gout big in the Viking Age? Which I think is actually quite an interesting question around diet, right? And Luke has specifically asked, is this why they were all massive and ripped? So yeah, let's talk about Viking diet. <laughs>
2: Right. right, so a few things to unpack. There. <laughs> I like this. So, gout. So that is a condition that is quite often thought to go. Well, we know comes from things like bites, rich diets, also a lot of alcohol. So I can see his idea here. Of
0: Neil on this. Instagram. How quickly <laughs> yeah. could they neck a pint?
2: <laughs> yeah, another one that also links to it. I can see a nice theme here. I think that's. I've got scientific answer. Seven point five seconds, actually. <laughs> That's a lie. That's a lie. I don't know. I think we need to ask about a horn. So you'd have a pint, but you'd have a horn. you drink from a horn. So the question should really be how quickly could they neck a horn? They did drink beer. could be meat. So, yeah, it's a valid question. Maybe we need to do some experimental archaeology and some testing in the History Hit office to find out. But anyway, let's go back to the gout. Do we know anything about gout? The so gout is a sort of condition where the body creates too much uric acid and that builds up as little horrible crystals in joints, especially the big toe, and it it's very, very painful. Now, we don't actually have any evidence for it in the Viking Age. We would have to find it in skeletons. So we'd have to look at that toe joint. You can find traces of things like arthritis. As far as I know, nobody's ever picked up something that they can definitely link to gout in the Viking Age. So, do we know if they drank a lot and ate a lot? (laughs) Certainly, if you look at the stories of Valhalla, so this sort of afterlife where the warriors could go to, I think those who go to Valhalla would, Definitely be likely to get gout because there they basically fight all day and then they eat and drink every evening. They have a pig that they slaughter every night and then they eat it and then it magically comes to life again the next day and they can do the same thing. And there's a lot of beer and a lot of mead. Real life, however, so they do drink beer. Beer was quite important, actually, it was really important, but it was normally kept for feasts and feasting activities because actually it was quite expensive it was quite difficult to produce you need a lot of grain a lot of corn for making it and that is something that was actually quite hard to come by especially in places like Norway where you don't have a lot of very good farmland so I don't think on a daily basis they would be lacking a lot of pints but for feasting activities definitely and in terms of diets or the food they ate so again We're a little bit limited in the sources we have. We can look at skeletons. We can look at some of these forensic methods to see. I don't think they're eating a lot of sort of very protein-rich diets just because there's not so much of it going around, so much of it available. Some of them are eating a lot of fish. We tend to sort of think, well, Vikings must eat a lot of fish because they're they there by the sea. For some of them, definitely that is true. And things like isotope analysis, where we look at bones and we look at diet, from that is showing high marine diets. But actually, it was really quite varied. So there's no sort of general, this is what a Viking ate, actually, a bit like us. Some of this is definitely also going to be linked to how wealthy you were. If you were wealthier, you'd have access to more higher protein diets. But yeah, I think we don't have those sort of super rich diets. Is that linked to things like size and height? It can be, so good diets, a lot of protein can make you sort of taller and obviously stronger. But some of that is genetic as well. So obviously, if you've got tall barons, you're going to be probably quite tall and pass that on to your children. So some of that is a sort of more Scandinavian genetic ancestry that we have got some quite tall people. And actually, some of the raiding parties we think we've found in places like England, they're not all that sort of big and strong. Some of them are not all of them. So again, I think we've got some of those stereotypes we talked about at the beginning uh, coming in here.
3: So they didn't all necessarily look like Alexander Skarsgård in The Northmen?
2: No, I don't think they did. Some of them probably, but <laughs> no, I think uh, some of them were sort of slightly more scrawny. But then again, they would have been used to physical work, right? So they'd be rowing and they would be farming, which is all really hard work, but not quite the six-pack abs, I don't think. Cool. Well, thanks for that, Jake and Luke. I hope
3: that's it. <laughs>
2: maybe I laid
3: some fears <laughs> or some comparisons for them.
0: Just thinking about diets, I suppose also what Vikings ate depended where they went. So if they came to Britain or they went to the eastern Mediterranean, they're going to be trying out different cuisines of different places where they went. But I wonder what influence they had on the cultures they left behind. So Lucy and Hand, through our newsletter and also through Instagram, have asked us about this question. What was the influence of Vikings on our culture now? And Cole has also written through the Medieval Monday newsletter, what was the impact of the Vikings on place names in the UK? And also, for example, accents. Are there traces of Viking in Geordie or Yorkshire accents?
2: These are really interesting questions. I like these ones because actually... The Vikings and the Viking Age had a massive influence, in fact, on the way we are talking right now. So the English language, for example, is hugely impacted by Scandinavians, especially. So I think England really is one of those big places where they made such a big impact. So English language has a lot of Old Norse words in it. So Old Norse is essentially the language that the people we call the Vikings spoke. Lots of words we use, things like Egg and sky and knife, even cake. These are all basically Viking words. So we've got the Vikings to thanks for, for all of those. So this happened when these Scandinavians are settling in England and start to have some of their words being taken up by the local population, because it's not a sort of complete colony where they're just sort of set up and, and don't interact very quickly. They mix in with the local populations, which is probably also the reason why we can't quite work out how many of them, because, you know, they're not separate. They sort of completely assimilate into the cultures. So we see a lot of it in the language, definitely. In art that appears at the time, lots of things like stone carvings have all these sort of really wonderful Scandinavian influences. And that's especially in the north and east of England, where we see it quite a lot. They had an impact on the economic system of England at the time. So they were essentially triggering a generation of coinage again. So the English economic systems that sort of turn into what we have today are really starting at this time as well, and partially because of the impact of that. Lots of towns are being created. Burr, so it's the places with a burr in the place name, these are essentially towns that had new defences made, starting with Alfred the Great, and a few generations afterwards as well. So certainly England, there's that huge impact. And with those things like place names, is one of those things where we can really see that. It's really interesting. So look around places like anything ending in BY. So, Derby, Rugby, the BY, B still in Scandinavian languages means town. So that would mean village or town. So, Derby is deer village, basically. So that's a really interesting one. And you can trace them around the country as well. And there's a lot more of them in the north you got lots of other versions, things like Thorpe. Thorpe means outlying settlement. That's again a Scandinavian word. Kirk, so things like Kirby. as Kirk comes from church, so Kirby means village with a church in it, for example. So you could go and see that quite a lot and you see much more of them in the places that had a really heavy Scandinavian presence. And in terms of things like accents, it's a bit harder because... We also have to remember that an awful lot has happened in the last thousand years. A lot of people have come across, and there's certainly into the Middle Ages, there's a big ongoing connection. Places like Scotland and the sort of Northern Islands and Norway, for example. You have a lot of people coming into places like Liverpool to work in the docks, lots of sailors coming in, 17th, 18th century. So scouse, for example, the sort of name for scouses for people from Liverpool comes from the dish lapscouse, which is actually a very common traditional dish in Norway of a sort of meat and vegetables. And that is thought not to be a Viking origin, but actually from those 18th century sailors and people who worked in the harbour. So when you have that later impact, it's difficult to tell. So are some of those later words, there's a lot of words used in the north and in Scotland that are more like Scandinavian words. But do they really date back a thousand years? Most cases, probably not. We can look at older documents, older place names, some really interesting ones where you see, we can go back, look at Doomsday Book, for example, and you can look at names there, place names, and pick up so you're much closer to the period itself. So there definitely is a legacy, but we have to be a little bit careful with looking just today at what people say today and try and work out what's happened since. So... Still kind of on the topic of culture, I'm fairly certain
3: that the Vikings were no stranger to parties. I know back in December we put out an episode about Viking midwinter solstice and Christmas and talking about the various feasts and parties and things that they were doing. And so one question that I particularly enjoy from Guy on Instagram is... What kind of tunes did they like? You know, what would have been on the orcs cable at a
2: Viking party? <laughs> I love that question so much. That sort of makes me a bit sad because we will never, I don't think, be able to know exactly what sort of music they listened to and exactly what they sang because nothing's been preserved unless you can record something. We would know? But having said that... We do know quite a bit about instruments that they played, so maybe we can sort of start to recreate it a little bit. We also know that they were really into poetry, and a lot of the poetry has been preserved. So at some of these feasts, people will be reciting poems, presumably to music. Maybe some of them did actually have tunes, so they would be sung. So that's a really nice thing. But also, we've got quite a lot of evidence of musical instruments that have come from the archaeological record, which I think is really nice. One of them is the lyre. So lyre is like a stringed instrument that you would either pluck later. We know it's used with a bow as well, but we don't quite know what the Vikings did. But we found those at Viking Age sites, places like Birka in Sweden. If you listen to sort of lyre music, it's got a really lovely sort of folksy kind of tune to it. So you can really imagine that, I think. And we also assume that they had drums or some sort of percussion instruments used possibly even in battle situation we have all these processions we know about from funerals and things so i think drums or certainly of some kind they would have had but what we've also found a lot of are horn-type instruments, so sort of horns that you can play. And again, I'd sort of recommend people Google this, just to sort of hear these sounds, even though if we don't know the exact tunes, you can hear the sounds they're making. So we, we find a lot of those. One type is known by the name Lud, which is almost like a trumpet-type thing. We've got examples of those known from before the Viking Age as well. Cow horns with holes in them. You can actually make a lot of sounds, a lot of tunes from the horn. Some of them can be used for sort of warning signals in battle situation, for example, but also to make really nice music. And finally, we've also got flutes. So we have examples of flutes being made, especially of bone with holes in them. A bit like a recorder, really, but hopefully slightly nicer sounding. So even though we haven't got the actual tunes, we have got the sounds. So I think from that we can probably try to recreate something quite similar to a Viking party.
3: I've got to just ask one final question. It's a quick one, just a one-word answer from Annie on Instagram. Who would win in a fight, a Viking or a bear? A bear.
2: (laughs) Well, unless you've got a weapon, I think the bear, sadly, would win.
3: There we go. Definitive answer from the Viking expert at Gone Medieval. A Viking could not take on a bear. You heard it here first, people.
0: (laughs) I think we should finish with a quick-fire round of the kind of common questions that Everybody wants to know about the Vikings. So the first thing, while you're fighting a bear, are you going to be wearing a horned helmet?
2: Not unless you're in a 21st century movie, no. Okay. let's do the raid on Lindisfarne was the first time Vikings came to England. Actually, that's false. That's not quite true. (laughs) We have an account of an earlier reign on Portland on the south coast of England in 789, But that's only the first recorded. So I think they're likely to have come earlier than that. But that's the first we know of.
0: Okay, true or false, the Vikings journeyed to North America before Christopher Columbus.
2: True. So we know that because we've got the sagas to tell us about it. And we also have archaeological evidence from Lancer Meadows dating to precisely the year 1021 possibly even earlier. So certainly there was a presence in North America at that time. True or false, Vikings always travelled on boats? False. A lot of travel would have been over land, on horseback, even on sledges and ice skates. So all sorts of modes of transport. That's interesting. I didn't know about ice skates.
0: So did they do dancing on ice as well?
2: I think they must have done. I think they'd be really good at that, actually.
0: Okay, so my final quickfire question, which has actually come from me, (laughs) were all Norsemen Vikings, was it compulsory to take to the seas, like a kind of conscription, or did they get a choice in the matter?
2: Oh, that's a good one. So I think that a lot of people did have a choice. You didn't necessarily have to go on a raid, although there would have probably been quite a lot of pressure. We have no evidence of any sort of conscription type rules, but if your chieftain or your family told you to, you probably would but certainly a lot of people were not raiders a lot of people had quite peaceful lives and this all comes back to our definition of what a viking was or what a viking did which is something i'm going to be getting into in the next episode where we're going to be talking about the rise of the vikings who they were where they came from and how the whole thing started so yeah i think you have to stay tuned on that one for the full answer Well, that was actually quite hard work answering all of those questions but Elena and Rob thank you so much for collecting them and for yeah grilling me
0: it's been a great pleasure I'm going to go and watch my box set of nog in the nog now just to revise
3: <laughs> yeah and I'm going to go see if I can find some mead
2: and recreate a viking party brilliant thanks so much and a huge thank you to all the listeners for sending in those brilliant questions it was fantastic to hear from you So that leaves me at the end of this episode don't forget to listen to the next three if you want more viking content where we're going to go deep diving into the start the middle and the end of the viking age this has been an episode of gone medieval from history hit i'm dr kat jaman don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already or leave us a review which really helps other people find the podcast And you can, of course, also subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes for how to do that. Don't forget that my co-host, Matt Lewis, will be back again on Saturday for his next episode. And I will be back with you next Tuesday. Thank you all for listening and have a great week.